Hey everyone, this is Connor. Before we get started, I just want to encourage you to check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. If you become a patron, you'll get access to multiple exclusive episodes every month. And you can also join our patrons-only Discord chat, where Pete and I talk informally with the Podside Picnic community. So if you like the show, go ahead and check us out at patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. Thanks. Welcome back to Podside Picnic. We're still going strong in the midst of uh, whatever is happening out there. And I don't—I think this will reach you guys on Tuesday. So I hope everyone's doing well. I hope if you're self-isolating, you're having as good a time as possible. Enjoy our podcast, all of those things. And um, we're going to break format here a little bit because, as you know, we almost always talk about fictional narratives be they on screen or on the page. Um, and today we're going to talk a little bit about nonfiction because our sound editor, Mr. Adam Wrench. Welcome, Adam. What? Thank you. Hey, man. I just, uh, I just stuttered a bunch like a fool. No, you're good, man. You're good. Uh, welcome. <laughs> Adam is a man of many talents. He is, I mean, he's, he does music. He's done podcasting. He edits multiple podcasts and he's a writer. And in this, in this case, he's put out a book called No Home for You Here. It is part memoir, part, part history, and I would say part theory in some ways. It's a really interesting hybrid. It's called, again, No Home for You Here from Reaction Books by Adam Theron Lee Wrench. I recommend that you all go pick it up. And we're going to dive into that. I will say that if you're bothered by this divergence from fictional narratives, we'll get back to it. But I think this is worth your time as well, because it is an interesting thing, touches on a lot of the sort of structural politics and bigger questions that we tackle here on the pod to help us understand art. So, yeah, as I sort of previewed there a little bit, this is a complex book to discuss. Uh, it's very interesting formally because it is partly a memoir about, uh, and, you know, I'm I, correct me if I'm bastardizing this, but it's a memoir in part about growing up in rural uh, Ohio uh, as a working class kid. And trying to accrue cultural capital, cultural intellectual capital, um, and make a break with that and all the complexities of how that went down and, and your family life and everything else. And it's intertwined with a more structural history of, you know, things like NAFTA, Reaganomics, uh, the 2008 economic crisis. Um, am, I, am I sort of describing yeah. this correctly? Yeah, no, that's actually a very good... It's actually probably better than I would be able to describe it as. So that's very, yeah, that's, that's pretty much exactly what it is. Cool. Well, I, I found it very interesting precisely because it is this hybrid document. And also something else folks should check out. Uh, you did an interview for the Brooklyn Rail where some writing that um, I think partly inspired this memoir mm -hmm. was originally featured. Uh, our, our mutual friend John Collins interviewed you and yeah. you talked about um, how you, you know, I, I'll let you speak, but you said you wanted to initially write a memoir of what happened, uh, especially about your dad and you sort of felt that that wasn't working. And so this is sort of what you came up with this interesting hybrid. So can you tell me about the process of deciding to do the book this way? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I guess, you know, I'd started writing a, 
various versions of like a quote unquote memoir as early as maybe 2010. So this is when I was living in Brooklyn, uh, right after I got my MFA, um, which I write about in the book. And I was working for Nick Flynn, who is a poet and a memoirist. Um, and I was kind of doing the Brooklyn literary scene thing. And at the time I thought this was like my, I thought I was like my break, you know, I was like this poor kid from Northwest Ohio who had never really left Ohio until I had moved to New York city. And here I was working for this famous poet, you know, his wife is an actress and he's introducing me to agents and, and so I was trying to sort of really uh, court the market, the literary market, especially. And at that time, memoir was big. And I mean, memoir, I think, is it fluctuates, but I feel like memoir has always been kind of a uh, a popular genre f- for the literary market um, because people have a kind of reality hunger. And, you know, and I had this story about at that time, it was just, you know, the death of my father and my stepmother. And I'd been trying to work through it. Um, my father died in 2007 and, um, but every time I tried to do this version of the book and I was, I was, I think it felt really, uh, kind of cheap and, uh, too obvious. Like I was just trying to write another version of like the sad literary memoir, basically. And every time I would start and, you know, I actually finished a number of drafts and, you know, had interest from agents, but every time I just, I felt really unsatisfied with it because it just felt like number one, I, I had uh, a deep sort of, I think insecurity about like, why the fuck would anybody give a shit about like me or my life (laughs) or like what happened to me and my father because we're nobody. Um, and then on, on the other hand, it just felt like I was just kind of exploiting my father's story for some sort of emotional, for like pathos that, you know, that I could then maybe exchange for a, a modest advance, um, from a publisher. And so I, I ended up leaving New York city and I came home and I, for a long time, I just didn't write. I ended up doing more graduate degrees and I was taking care of my friend who was really sick, uh, with cystic fibrosis. And then I got, you know, big into theory and political economy. And, um, I started writing sort of more journalistic form essays for the Brooklyn rail. And that was actually sort of how the book came about is the editor, um, at the Brooklyn rail, Paul Maddock, he started commissioning me to write more and more pieces. And then one day he was like, Hey, I'm editing a book series and, uh, I want you to write a book about anything you want basically. And, uh, and at first, when I tried to write the book, I, I didn't want to really write about myself at all, because um, I sort of have an aversion to that kind of thing. And even actually, since the book has come out, I've had a hard time even promoting it because I don't like to, it feels cheap or something. Um, I'm a very bad hustler, as it were. Hey, we're, ha- we're here to help, man. <laughs> well, thank you. And so um, I the first draft of the book was really very limited in terms of my story or my father's story. It was primarily just like a history of, you know, the last 30, 40 years of neoliberalism and the sort of post-industrial turn and the rise of the new Democrats and all this kind of stuff. And, but it was also that version of the book, like, as I was telling John in the interview, it, it felt like I was trying to do too much. Like I was 
trying to offer some definitive history of the last 40 years, which of course you can't really do in 200 pages. Uh, and so I sent it to the editors and, and, and Paul and they're like, you know, this is, this, you know, this is good, but it's not working. And I also felt unsatisfied with it. And then I sort of realized like, you know, my lifespan is basically almost the precise lifespan of, of neoliberalism. I mean, obviously if you want to court track neoliberalism back to 73, I'm a bit younger than that, but with Reagan coming into office in 80, you know, I was born in 84, you know, right when Reagan was declaring mourning again in America or whatever. And, um, and so in a lot of ways I, I lived, I, I, my life is like a weird index of all of these weird shifts in, in the economy and, and in also for the culture wars too. And, and I really internalized a lot of that discourse, whether I realized it or not. And I, I realized it, it kind of became a, a very easy way to, to tell the story that I sort of wanted to tell. So I kind of gave in and I uh, embraced the the fact that I was kind of doing a, a book more about my life. And when I did, I was much, much happier with the results. So, okay. That's interesting. It sounds like there was quite an arc there that takes you, took you almost a decade to sort of oh, yeah. you know, dip into the memoir form, pull back out for all those reasons you talked about, which I, I'm very interested in and sort of circle back organically because it ended up being for you the best way uh, into all of this history and, and thus the, the sort of interesting hybridity oh, yeah. um, of, of all of that. And I, you know, I sort of, I, I think what most fascinates me here, um, which we might as well just dive into, is in the book itself and in the interview in the Brooklyn Rail and also elsewhere, I've heard you talk about what you, what you alluded to in that, uh, that spiel just now about your, your fear of or aversion to or uh, even just purely aesthetic dislike of exploiting uh certain kinds of real misery, uh, you know, certain kinds of narratives that are meant to generate certain kinds of feelings. And I'm probably characterizing this wrong, but I think, you know, that that you talk about your aversion to taking the tragic arc of your father um, and commodifying it, I think. And yeah. and stories of stories like that. Or, I mean, there's just a whole cluster of questions here that I think are very interesting about, you know, how you think about and have thought about um, what kind of stories are useful and when our storytelling conventions fail us. And I guess I don't have a targeted question right here. I yeah. just want to let you, let you open up about that. Yeah. So, I mean, I have a very complicated relationship because on the one hand I am, I'm a very, I'm like a deeply sentimental person in some ways. Um, I love watching movies and reading books and listening to music and just like feeling all of the feelings, you know, I, I give into them and, you know, anyone who knows me and who's close to me knows like the joke, the ongoing joke is that every single song is my favorite song because at a certain moment I will listen to a song and I will fall in love with it. And I'll say, this is the <laughs> greatest thing I've ever heard in my life, or this is the best movie I've ever seen or whatever. You know, I, I, I'm very, I'm prone to hyperbole. I'm prone to sort of melodrama. And, um, and I, I, I'm also kind of sensitive in that way. And so I'm, I'm very interested in stories that, um, complicate, uh, you know, two dimensional caricatures of people. I'm, I'm very interested in stories about people who are quote unquote bad, um, or who are, you know, who fall on the margins of society in some way for whatever reason. 
Um, and so for that sense, in that sense, I, I, it's why I was kind of drawn to literature in the first place. It's why I ended up doing my graduate degree in English. Um, cause I love, I love those kinds of stories. I love the way they make me feel. But, um, I also know that politically speaking, and this is like the separation that I'm always having to make is that like, you know, the, the sort of political economy of literature and the structure of, of those kinds of narratives is, I think, in, in a certain sense, very, very neoliberal because they encourage you to identify with uh, problems on a very personal level. And it's always about personal feeling rather than what I would call like structural exploitation. Um, and because the whole, the whole point of like exploitation is that it doesn't really matter how you feel about the people who are exploiting, they're being exploited, whether or not, um, whether or not you like them, you know, you can like somebody and exploit them, you know, as you know, you can have a, you can be best friends with your boss, but he's still exploiting you. Um, and so trying to sort of grapple with that idea of like, okay, I can write a sad story about my father about my life, about the death of my friends. And I know, and you know, I, I referenced James Agee in the book because I know James Agee struggled with this too, um, with his fantastic, uh, let us now praise famous men, which I think is, you know, one of the best books of the 20th century. Um, you know, this idea that basically who's reading books primarily, you know, I mean, you have a kind of educated, you know, middle class. I mean, that's kind of what the literary market is. And these are people who can purchase their their sort of political sentiments by reading books that, uh, you know, kind of reflect back to them the problems that they feel like they're supposed to care about. And they'll feel bad about them. And then and that's it. You know, they'll close the book and that's the end of the story. It doesn't really do anything. And of course, that raises you know, the question of whether or not art or literature is is supposed to or even can do anything. And so I, I thought. Well, do I want to write that kind of book, which is going to be written, you know, this sort of Oprah book club memoir? And I don't really want to do that, you know, um, even though maybe it would probably sell more copies. Um, but what I really wanted to write about was the kind of structural or like, you know, the political economy underneath all of those things. Um, and for that, you know, the point is, it doesn't really matter what you think about my father or me or anybody the underlying sort of material problems are, are, are really what the story is, I guess. Um, so in a certain sense, the memoir is less about me than it is. It's almost sort of like a memoir of neoliberalism, you know, um, does it, if that makes any sense. I oh yeah. Know. I think that makes a lot of sense. I think, um, I, I just have so many questions. I do think it might be useful for our listeners. Um, and again, I, there's a lot of irony in me asking this, <laughs> but, and I don't want to make you, uh, I don't want to press you too hard on this. I do think it might help our listeners if we, if we kind of outlined the personal narrative, mm -hmm. um, that we're talking about here that that's also recorded in your book. Um, you know, a little bit about the, the memoir arc here. Uh, you know, what, what are we, what are we really talking about and what was it that you were wrestling with? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I grew up, uh, in Ohio um, and I should also say that in a certain sense, some of this book was a kind of a response to J.D. Vance's book, um, Hillbilly Elegy, which is arguably one of the worst books I've ever read in my entire life. <laughs> um, I mean, it's just utter trash. And, um, 
you know, I grew up in Ohio. I grew up in the north part of Ohio. He grew up in southern Ohio, uh, which is, you know, I guess closer to Appalachia. Um, I grew up in northwest Ohio, which is sort of the flat, boring farmland part. It's basically an hour from Indiana and an hour from Michigan. And uh, I grew up poor. My, you know, lived in a trailer park for the first, I don't know, five or six years of my life. And then we moved to a much smaller sort of ranch style house. My father worked in a factory. My mother was a realtor, um, a struggling realtor at first. And though she, as I write in the book, she kind of gained some success in her profession by the time I was like in high school. And, uh, but, you know, growing up that way, there was a, a profound, a profound sense of like inadequacy or shame that I had about being poor. You know, I, I remember like my father dropping me off in school and I used to feel ashamed about like my, the car that my dad drove. And I, I never really understood why, like, I, cause you know, when you're six or seven, you don't think about like, at least I didn't at the time, I didn't think like, wow, we're poor and other people are rich. It just, it was more like they have nice things and we don't have nice things. And I, I sort of intuited that like, I should be ashamed of that fact. And, uh, and I sort of began to think what was my way out of this life? Like, how do I become one of those people who is part of the elite, you know? And there was always that contradiction where on the one hand, I sort of resented the elite but I also sort of wanted to become them, which I think is very characteristic of, of, of that kind of, I feel like Nietzsche would probably have a heyday with, with this like slave mentality kind of thing. But, um, I, I realized that basically what I could do because I didn't really have any understanding of class. Um, and because no one, I feel like most people don't really have a strong understanding of what class is. You know, we understand class primarily through culture and through education so being classy, as it were. And so I thought, well, you know, if I can become the smart guy, the guy who's doing, who knows the, who knows the good books to read or who knows the good works of art or who reads the good philosophy books, well, then that's going to be my ticket out of poverty or something. And, and so I really sort of I devoted myself to that. And, you know, some of that was the influence of my father, who was a very educated person, even though, you know, he never finished college at first. And, um, but when I was finishing college, you know, my stepmother died of cancer. My father was a, a binge drinking alcoholic. And then he, he passed away after a long year of basically losing his mind and being homeless. And, and then I, right when that happened, I ended up going to do, doing my MFA in, in creative writing. And I thought like, you know, this is my ticket. I'm going to New York. I'm going to write the, I'm going to write a bestseller. I'm going to be like a literary darling, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, in fairness, all MFA students are, we do form a cultural elite, us MFA holders. So <laughs> it's, it's really, you know, the MFA thing is very odd. The, the program era is an amazing book. If anybody hasn't read it, everyone should read it by Mark McGurl. Um, it's about the sort of rise of creative writing as a discipline. Um, and I think it's really interesting and very relevant in a lot of ways to a lot of my concerns, but, um, but yeah, so, you know, you know, entering my 20s as basically uh, a kid from the middle of nowhere who is sort of endeared to like the New York and art, you know, the art scene. And in a certain sense, if you've seen Lady Bird, 
I feel like she has a similar kind of trajectory where she's growing up in Sacramento, which she actually calls the the Midwest of California. Um, and she also, you know, her dreams to like go to NYU and like be a cultured, you know, esthete. Um, and so I really wanted those things. And, and at a certain point, you know, and I only realized this now, and I only began to realize this sort of after the fact is that I didn't actually care about the problems that I ostensibly claimed to care about. You know, my leftism was fundamentally aesthetic. It was like, I just kind of wanted to be smarter than people. And I kind of just wanted to have the right opinions about things. And I didn't particularly care about actually changing anything as long as I got to, you know, publish my books or, you know, be revered in some, in some sort of trivial sense. Um, and, and so, yeah. And so then coming home, you know, after the financial crisis, I came home to Ohio and that's sort of when everything kind of changed for me. I stopped writing and I, all of my opinions about those things started, started to change. But, uh, yeah, is that, what am I, am I, I feel like I've lost my train of thought. Now. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, you did a great job answering the question. I think, I think it's exactly, I just wanted to think you've, you've outlined, I think very nicely, um, what this arc was like and, and, um, you know, uh, sorry. I'm like, I'm trying to think of like how much, uh, how much of your, more of your story I should tell for you. No, it's, it's that, uh, I I think what I find so interesting um, here is like you have a really interesting, like a very finely attuned narrative sense uh, about your own story and the story of your family. And, and I find it very interesting how it's recorded in this book. I find it really interesting to hear you talk about it. Um, and I, you know, as a fellow writer who focuses more on fiction, but I, you know, I am so interested in just the the back and forth that I could see working on the page as you, you know, you, you like how the specific aesthetic of like, I almost want to call it an aesthetic of reluctance yeah <laughs> operates because you, I think this is very, it's very noble, honestly, that you don't, you don't want to, you, to exploit even your own story um, or the story of those closest to you. And I actually admit, I think, I think you're, your work is one of the first times I've really encountered someone, I think, working through that comprehensively. People, I think, often gesture at that and then go ahead and hit us with the full bore pathos. But yeah. I do think that your your memoir does a really nice job. Um, not that there's no feeling, no emotion in it, um, but that, that, that it's sort of, I think, it, it takes its your, your dictum seriously to not sort of... Um, what's the right word that I'm looking for here? Sensationalize. Yeah, I don't yeah. indulge in it. Like... That was, you know, if you read the book, it's, it's interesting because, and, and this was a very conscious decision on my part, which is that like, there's not a lot of what we would call like scene setting or like, uh, you know, in workshops, especially people will say, well, like, okay, you're just kind of just, you're kind of summarizing a lot of this, like put it in scene. And whenever you're in a workshop and a, 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 someone says to put it in a scene, what they really mean is like, they want to be able to sort of like imagine themselves there as like a fly on the wall and it's meant to sort of build character and also to sort of understand things on some sort of intimate level, because if you just summarize something, it has no pathos generally speaking. Um, and that's bad if you're a writer, because for, especially in, you know, for most creative writing programs, the point is that like we have to be able to identify with these, these characters. And if you don't, you're somehow failing as a, as a writer. Um, 
because that's what the market sort of wants is people we can sort of identify with. And so, you know, one of the things that I was sort of intentionally doing is I, you know, I, I written several drafts of, of, uh, of like a kind of classical or traditional literary memoir about my father. Um, and this was granted, this is before the deaths of my, my two best friends, um, which really kind of, uh, their deaths kind of appear in the last chapter of the book. Um, and so the early drafts of this memoir were really just about my father, um, and his sickness and, and his situation. And all of that stuff is just really not in there. Like I, you know, I appropriated some of the scenes, but I was very conscious of like avoiding, uh, s- sitting with a scene for too long and because I didn't want people to sort of feel comfortable and, begin to sort of have that kind of experience reading a book. And so I would often kind of get out of it much quicker than I think a traditional memoir would, and then go kind of resort to sort of, um, I'd kind of zoom out. Uh, I, in a lot of ways, the book is kind of a zooming in and zooming out experience where I'm, I'll kind of dip into like the particular of my experience and say like, you know, this is where I was in middle school or this is where I was in high school, but then immediately it's, you know, those scenes would sort of give me an opportunity to say like, well, this wasn't actually that common, uncommon for families at that time. Now let me give you three pages on like the, you know, the rise of the credit and debt as a structuring sort of problem for late capitalism or something, you know, and that's not something that like most people feel anything about. And that was kind of um, I think pretty, pretty intentional. Yeah. I think the zooming in, zooming out kind of gets at what I'm saying when I say back and forth. And I also want to expand on this a little bit for, I'm sure we have some listeners who are very familiar with formal or academic creative writing spaces, uh, as you and I both are, we're both, I'm in an MFA program and you have an MFA. Um, and you're also, you've done a full PhD in creative writing as well. Uh, yeah, I'm almost, almost I'm almost done with that. I'm almost AB, full, yeah. I'm ABD. ABD, there we go. Um, yeah. You have, yeah, man, you've, this is your third graduate degree, right? It is. It's insane. I, I think it's cool. Um, it's actually just, just been, it's actually classic, like, slacker. Like, I don't want to get a job and I don't actually want to work because I hate work. So I'll just keep getting degrees. That's like really like, and also I don't want to pay back my loan. So if I keep getting degrees and keep deferring them, um, that's basically been my my operating logic for like the last you know, 15 years of my life. <laughs> well, hey man, I mean, this podcast official stance, at least as far as I'm concerned, is strongly anti-work. Uh, I don't know. I'm, yeah. I'm not going to speak for Pete, but I'm anti-work too. So I feel that. Um, yeah. And I think, yeah, I, I just think to just want to expand a little bit on what you're saying about like put it in scene. This is so interesting to me. I think the overriding, th- there's, there are specific ways that graduate workshops conventionally function. You've pointed at, at some of them. Um, and you just mentioned that Mark McGurl book where, you know, there there are arguments about the specific historical contingency of how we got there, of how we developed MFA conventions and how they've shaped American literature mm-hmm. um, kind of recursively, I think, American literature shapes MFAs and vice versa. But I also think that, like, to to take – even if you were to put aside some of the historical contingency, I think, I think you'd settle on – there's just certain things that are easy to talk about talk about in that kind of group setting where, you know, the tradition is that the person being workshopped is mostly silent. Um, and everyone is supposed to holistically tackle their work, uh, 
mm-hmm. uh, and be generous, but also critical. And I think that like what you said is exactly that. It's like that the desire is for emotional proximity, which usually functions through um, wanting sensory proximity. Like we're so, we're supposed to build outward from sensory description. You're supposed yeah. to kind of arrest my sensory apparatus and drag me kicking and screaming. And, you know, not necessarily kicking and screaming, but I think especially in workshop, it's like, you know, if we're being honest with ourselves, we don't necessarily want to read our classmates, uh, you know, early drafts of their stories. And so <laughs> what we look out for, what we look for are the, what are the moments where we are sort of pulled in, even despite our skepticism and, and how could we expand those and then the moments that are pushing us away. And I think the, the pulling in again, it's emotion, but it's emotion via senses. And I guess I'll give a concrete example of this. Um, you know, my one of my classmates recently read a story at our reading series um, that's about sort of alcoholics uh, disintegrating in different ways. And it's layered and interesting and draws on a lot of uh, uh, counterintuitive influences like Nausgaard. But the mm. there's a lot of gross imagery in it. Like there's, for instance, there's this deer that has an eyeball kind of hanging out. Um, of its head, which is gross, and that yeah. is you know that that was arresting. But actually, what's interesting about it when I talk about it, like arresting people sensorily, the most the 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 sort of the line that I can't get out of my head is this moment where this guy who's a recovering alcoholic who has relapsed and is trying to be have a good time with his buddies who are also recovering alcoholics, and like he shows up, they believe drunk, and he's like trying to be the life of the party while that while the rest of them are not drinking. Uh, he offers the narrator a bag of M&Ms and the narrator reaches into it and gets smeared with like cold marinara sauce. So somehow this guy is like smeared marinara sauce that has gone cold over the M&Ms. <laughs> and that was just so disgusting to me in a way that like the deer with the eyeball hanging out wasn't. Yeah. And I, I still am like unable to think about that without being dragged into the scene. So that, that was a long spiel to kind of establish for our listeners at home, like what, what ends up happening at MFA workshops. And I think all of that, like the sensory detail, to drag you into the scene and then you're in this scene and then you're going to feel what the characters are feeling. All of that actually does make a lot of sense um, just mechanically for how to, how to, how to grow as a fiction writer. Mm-hmm. But I want to go back to what you were saying earlier and, and agree with you that um, th- this, this raises a fundamental question about storytelling, whether in fiction or nonfiction, which is does feeling the right thing, especially when that feeling can be voyeuristic or the feeling itself can be exploitative because you're feeling someone else's vicarious pain that is not your real imminent terrifying pain, but it's just, you know, witnessing cathartically someone else's suffering, whether real or imagined. Um, there's a real ethical question there that I don't think anyone has ever, maybe impossible to resolve, but I, I like the way that you're, you're approaching it. Yeah. So, I mean, um, I feel like the, it's important to make a sort of distinction, which is that, um, in a certain sense, it's not like I'm saying no one should write novels or no one should write memoirs or no one should write stories that make you feel things because those things are fine. And I like to read them. It's just like, it's not the project that I want to do. And it's also not a project that I feel like has any political valence. Um, I'm deeply skeptical about the possibility of art or literature or anything having doing anything other than being able to offer some sort of argument for, for something, um, which has nothing to do with, you know, your feelings about it. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of, I've become very skeptical about the possibility of art, um, having some sort of revolutionary role. Um, but, uh, 
there's a moment in the in the book that I I write about, and this happened. So I did my MFA or I did my BFA in photography, and so you have to imagine this is 2005, 2006. So this is like just after this is like the thick of the Iraq War when we had no idea it was going to last for another fucking decade. Um, I am a this is also a peak sort of 2000s Bush era liberalism where being reasonable is somehow uh, critical in some sort of sense. And I am doing my BFA in photography and my father is, uh, you know, binge drinking alcoholic who is slowly drinking himself to death after the death of his wife. And at one point, my photography instructor, who was this very strange man from Spain, he, I remember one time he said, you should take a picture of your father. You know, my father's like, you know, hasn't showered in weeks and he's just like sitting in his apartment, which he's destroyed. And in the book I say, you know, um, I'm trying to remember the exact phrasing I use, but you know, the, the, the appeal of that sort of thing is that those kinds of images. So depictions or representations of despair only ask people to feel something about them. Um, they don't actually ask people to change anything about the situation. Um, and for that reason, they're much more appealing, you know, this sort of photojournalistic um, thing. And this isn't to say that people who do photojournalism or who people who document um, poverty and despair aren't doing anything important. But at the end of the day, those kinds of documents and based on the structure of, you know, how we consume those documents, generally speaking, I think they they only ask us to feel a certain way about what is being sort of represented in the image, they don't actually ask us to change anything about um, what made that image possible. And that's really, that distinction for me is the crucial distinction that I was kind of always bumping up against um, as I was writing about these things, because I'm somebody who who wants to change everything. Um, I don't really care how people feel about my father. I don't really care about how people f- feel about anything necessarily. Um, because at the end of the day, you can feel lots of different ways. Um, but if people aren't, you know, people don't have the material resources that they need, then that, like, I, like, I don't understand. I don't get the point of feeling a certain way. So, yeah, I mean, that's all, that's an interesting spiel. And it, it raises so many questions that we, we can't really answer in the scope of this <laughs> yeah, I know, show, I but feel- I, I do want to say to our listeners, if you're interested in these, in these questions, I think that, um, Adam's book is a really great uh, entree onto some of that. And I think that the way that you staged a lot of that, um, you know, you're, you're trying, you're trying an approach that is difficult and new um, in a lot of ways. And I, I think of that, that again, that, that sort of that aesthetic of reluctance that I'm, as I'm calling it. um, Yeah. I mean, it's one of the animating forces of the book and it's, it's definitely interesting. I'm still, I'm sitting here, um, kind of trying to parse it, which is why I'm rambling a little bit, but I, uh, yeah. Um, that's interesting. You call it the aesthetic of reluctance, you know, it, um, you've read 1004 by Ben Lerner, right? Yeah. So I feel like Ben Lerner is doing something similar in 1004 where, you know, he has the New Yorker story in the middle of the book and the New Yorker story is, you know, new, there's nothing that, sort of embodies the literary market 
more succinctly and more aptly than the New Yorker, which is the sort of, you know, it's, it's the tastemaker for, for middle-class literary interests. And, you know, he has this story and he doesn't want to just adapt the story into a novel as the publisher wants him to do. So he just shoves it in there and then he writes a novel around the story, which effectively teaches you how to read the story for what it is. And that's kind of the subversive thing about the novel. That's I think so incredible, but you know, one of the things that he does in that story or in the novel is that basically by teaching the, the reader how to read the story, it's in a certain sense, we're sort of reading the story with him. Like, cause of the way he drops it in there, he says, you know, I, I began to write the story very quickly and then it appeared so quickly that it appeared in the New Yorker several weeks later when I was in the office while someone was waiting for their dental extraction or something. And the idea is that he's reading the idea is that within, within the sort of, uh, world of the novel, he's at that point, he opens up the New Yorker and he reads his own story, but we're also reading the story. And so there's a certain sense in which we're reading the story with him and it sort of challenges this sort of neoliberal frame for how we consume stories, which is like, I'm reading a story. I feel a certain way. I, you know, it makes me feel good, et cetera, et cetera. The story's over. Okay. Now I'm going to read something else. I'm going to do the dishes. I'm going to take a shit, whatever, whatever people do. <laughs> um, and you know, he's really sort of, I think playing with that because then, you know, by the end of the novel, he, he ends up um, resorting to the second person plural, as he says, which is this idea of we're all looking at the city together because, um, you know, one of the things about exploitation or, you know, structural problems is that we can all look at them and see the same thing. Whereas um, the kind of neoliberal aesthetic personal problems, I can read a story and feel a certain way, but if you read the story, you might not feel the same way. You might feel something totally different. And, you know, that's kind of a problem in a certain sense, especially politically, because if you don't get people to all feel the same way, then you have a problem. But if you can uh, get everyone to see the same thing, regardless of how they feel, then you have the possibility for, for kind of a, a political, you know, a political action, I guess. Um, and that's, I feel like that's what he's really trying to do in the book. And that's also kind of, in a certain sense, the motivating factor and, and, a lot of my book as well. Okay. Wow. That was, that's interesting because I, I would not have taken 1004 to be not a point of comparison, but, um, yeah, it's a weird point of comparison. Cause it's a, you know, it's a novel, but, but yeah, I feel like that was kind of in my mind in the background in some, in some ways. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, 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 it's making me sort of rethink, um, some of the things I thought some of, and I mean, I don't want to perhaps aesthetic of reluctance is over and overbearing term. I guess all I mean is that, the book is constantly staging your, I mean, I, I don't think, is, do you think reluctance is an un, unfair term? A reluctance to commodify No, suffering? I think that's fair. I think that's totally fair. Yeah. Because yeah. it's also sort of like at the end of the day, it's like, I also don't know how to, what other kind of story at the end of the day, you know, you can't tell a story in a certain sense without, ha without those kinds of things that I find to be in a certain sense, maybe problematic for, 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 for sort of political reasons. Um, you just can't do it. It's just like not, 
it's just, that's how stories are. Um, and so the question is sort of like, if all stories in a certain sense are going to kind of ha- maybe be saddled with those problems, how do you tell that story, but also kind of um, frame the story or kind of, um, uh, what's the word I'm thinking of? I just had a, a tall boy because it's uh, Corona <laughs> season and now my brain is slow. Um, oh man, I'm totally blanking on the word. The, okay, let, let's, the, okay, I'm, I'm blanking on it too. <laughs> what? Let's, let's work backwards. What are we doing here? <laughs> I was, so I was saying, how do you frame the story or how do you um, sort of, oh my God, this is, insane. this is so embarrassing. I can't believe I'm forgetting the word. I frame, I guess I'm, I'm trying to think of exactly what you're talking about. Like, how do you, like, uh, how do you, how do you, um, how do you, uh, neutralize is the one I was thinking of. Neutralize. (laughs) How do you neutralize the problem? Right. So it's almost like there's almost a sense. So there's almost a sense in like, so in 1004, there's almost a sense in which the New Yorker story is like a vaccine. You give someone a little bit of the problem and it kind of inoculates them to, from feeling the sickness that you don't want them to feel. And you can write around that the novel and in a certain sense, it's kind of, I was trying to find ways to neutralize the problem, you know, um, you call it like an aesthetic of reluctance. And I feel like that reluctance is me always kind of trying to say, you know, realizing like, okay, I'm wading into territory that is by its nature, very sentimental. Like, you know, how do you write about the death of your father without in some sense it coming across as like sentimental, but I also don't want to write about that. So like that problem is unavoidable. But I also don't want to do it in this way that's like cloying and manipulative and like, let me make sure that you understand how to feel, you know, how to feel sad about what's happening. Um, and so whenever when I was coming into those moments in the book, I was like, oh, man, I got to I got to pull back. I got to like, you know, let me write about Marx or something, you know, <laughs> just like totally neutralize the 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 sentiment or something. Um, that was yeah. kind of like my attempt, I guess. That's interesting, sort of to think about it almost in like chemical terms. Like you have to achieve a neutral pH in the. Yeah. <laughs> you get too much too much feeling, too much sentiment, and you have to balance it out with some uh, cold, uh, unsentimental analysis. And I think that that comes across quite clearly in the way that that this narrative unfurls. And I think that's I think you make a, a key point there also that like we can try to defy narrative convention as storytellers, but I think that what we can't get past is that readers will cohere the elements we give them into conventional narratives anyway. Um, That's just how we sort of interpret. That's how we interpret most, like so many forms of information we get, we turn into narratives, Um, whether it's an argument that's not really supposed to be narrative, but like, that's one thing I think you learn as a writer. Like the more you think about how you're constructing narratives, the more you see that, the more you see all the narratives be constructed around you, even in cases where it's not, there's no, there may be zero narrative to cohere. And if we're being, a certain kind of postmodernist, we might say that all of those narratives are bogus anyway. But I, the point is just that, um, yeah, I mean, you're up, you're up against something very difficult, which is why I think this is ultimately, uh, albeit a slim, but an ambitious text. Um, and I think, you know, I guess I feel like we could go on like this forever, but I, I want to ask you, I think, I think we should, we're about the time we should wind down probably. And I, I want to, yeah. um, I want to give you a chance to sort of, uh, 
you know, for people that are interested in this book, um, what's, uh, you know, if they're interested in giving it to someone as a gift, like what, you know, what, what's your pitch for this book? And I know that puts you in a weird spot because you don't like promoting it, but I'm just interested yeah. how you would frame it for people who might be interested in all these topics. Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> the book, in a lot of ways, the book was my attempt to write a, uh, and I guess it was almost kind of an attempt to solve a different problem, which is like, how do you do like a Marxist um, analysis of like the past 40 years without devolving too heavily into the dry, alienating um, sort of critical language that is often being used by by a lot of Marxists and a lot of academics. Um, and so, I, you know, I didn't really want to write a book that was just for other people like me or you who understand these kinds of concepts. I wanted to be able to write a book that, you know, maybe they won't understand every single passage in the book, but they'll understand the broad trajectory of the book. Um, and I tried to sort of put things in terms that, you know, people who don't have graduate degrees can kind of, you know, understand. And the book is really, I think, um, I think the, I don't know how to, an elevator pitch is sort of, the book is basically about why um, the sort of broader uh, cultural wars that we have been kind of steeped in, I think for the last, you know, 30, 40 years, um, you know, and you see this all the time now. I mean, you see this constantly with Donald Trump, you know, this sort of liberal kind of establishment kind of going after how stupid he is or the fact that he does typos or the fact that it's in some aesthetic sense, like he is, he is um, an embarrassment. Um, I was actually just hanging out with my buddy earlier who is in the acknowledgements of my book. His name is Daniel. He's like probably the smartest person I've ever met in my life. And he said, you know, in a lot of ways, Donald Trump is a prole. I mean, he's a rich guy, but he's kind of proletarian in the way that he thinks about things. Um, and that is really what bothers people. That's really what bothers the kind of liberal kind of elite um, in the democratic establishment is the fact that he, it's not that he's rich. They don't care that he's rich because well, a lot of people, Nancy Pelosi is rich. It's the fact that in a certain sense, culturally, he doesn't adhere to these um, weird sort of, you know, merit, meritocratic sort of norms that they've internalized as being the way things ought to be. And my book is basically, you know, it's a it's a critique of meritocracy. It's a critique of of those kind of ways of thinking about things, and it's also the, ultimately kind of about why you know what we do, you know our jobs, those kinds of things. We have to sort of get past the 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 sort of cultural baggage that comes with thinking about work and thinking about class to understand that at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter how smart you are. It doesn't really matter like how. Um, you know, you know, the right words or, or these kinds of things that I feel like have totally taken over our, our political imagination. Um, you know, at the end of the day, it's about who has power and who doesn't have power and, you know, who has control of the resources and who doesn't have control of the resources. And if you can kind of begin to sort of see those things, you can kind of begin to see that some of the people that you may perceive as adversaries or people you perceived to have nothing in common with you, I actually have, I think, much more in common with you um, than you might realize. Um, and that's, I think, what, you know, building 
sort of political coalitions is about. That's kind of what class consciousness is about. Um, so hopefully the book is in some sense attempted to, to do that. Um, and it's also kind of about, you know, what it's like to grow up in Northwest Ohio where you've got nothing going on and, you know, your dad's an alcoholic. So, <laughs> yeah, I, that was a good, I, I think we neglected the cultural, uh, culture wars element, which is very present in the book too. That's also interesting. I will say that I'm not, I don't know if I totally buy your friend's analysis of the, the parole aesthetic of Trump, just because I, I scan him more as like a particular kind of rich dude, but I get, oh, okay. what, I get where he's coming from. Yeah, um, no, he's, yeah, he's, he has a lot of interesting, uh, my buddy has a lot of interesting takes on these, on these kinds of things. So, yeah, I mean, it's, look, it's at least a, it's a contention worth considering it. And there's no question that a lot of objections to Trump from a certain kind of liberal elite have been almost entirely aesthetic at times. Yeah. Um, and that's, that is worth lots of consideration. Um, Adam, uh, is there anything else you want to plug while I have you here or promote or anything else you want to add? I think this has been great. Yeah. Uh, I don't think I have anything else. I, I'm not really doing anything else. Um, thank you for, uh, you know, breaking, breaking your format for me. No, it's, it's my pleasure. Um, thanks everyone. 